the Palace Group on Facebook who are actively going to their their little vignette posts and revisiting them every day. So we talked earlier about people who don't stick to the plan. We have a small <laughs> audience there that are sticking to the plan. So way to go, guys. I love it. Go, guys. Yeah, Super. really, really good. Actually, I shouldn't say guys because most of them are women. The women are the ones who are <laughs> – Guys, Folks. we're we're we're, Folks. we're falling behind, guys. I mean, the women are ahead of us here, so this is where we have to kind of you know step up our game a little bit. Except for Jeffrey, Jeffrey's like one, uh, one of the leaders on the site there. But um, right. yeah, by all means, keep. It's loud and clear. We take you inside the news. Well, listeners, next up, I'm Allison Rose Levy, and I'm here with you every Wednesday at 10 a.m. Eastern Time on the Progressive Radio Network. Each week on Connect the Dots, we connect the dots between our own well-being, the well-being of our communities, our society, and our biosphere, planet Earth. And each week on the show, um, I talk to different experts, thought leaders, advocates, scientists, economists, filmmakers, poets, and a whole host of people um, who have perspectives from different vantage points on our interconnected world. I'm a longstanding journalist of the environment, food, health, public policy, media, and popular attitudes. Um, the show is now, I am happy to say, this podcast is in its 10th year. Yay. Um, and you can also look for recent articles from me, uh, those of you who would like more content. Uh, I have current articles, if you Google my name, on Truthdig, Common Dreams, and The Independent, I-N-D-Y, Pendant. Um, on today's show, I'm delighted to have a, a returning guest who actually has been here um, just in the last couple of months, and now we had to bring him back given what's going on in our world. He also is a podcast host, an author, a journalist, um, and he has a terrific article up on Common Dreams, which we'll be discussing and unpacking more today. Welcome back, um, R.J. Richard Esco. He is uh, the host of the Zero Hour, and he's also a senior advisor on health and economic justice at Social Security Works. Um, I've been on his program um, as well, and I always enjoy the conversation. Welcome to Connect the Dots, Richard Esco. Uh, great to talk to you, Allison, as always. So, you know, we've had this situation, um, which is really a disruption of the democratic process uh, around the Democratic Party nomination um, over the last several days. And I am sure that many people are feeling concerned about this from various angles, uh, one of them being last night um, that we had a State of the Union address um, with Donald Trump holding forth. I must confess, I didn't watch it. I don't usually watch them. In fact, I've never seen one of his. Um, because, you know, I think people have this idea that, you know, and, and, and you and I as both long-term media people can really set that one straight, you know, that the media pours forth from high heaven with the absolute truth from trusted authorities, um, and anything that you see from sort of certified authorities must necessarily be, you know, the, the gospel truth. Uh, and it never occurs to them that, in fact, they are being manipulated, enlisted, terrified, if you happen to be watching Donald Trump, 
you know, and may be terrified that, you know, that terror may lead you down certain pathways, um, you know, and it just never crosses anyone's mind. Um, so, you know, we already have a new context for our discussion of Iowa, which is, you know, Trump, who um, whose endless horrors always intrude on our ability to kind of set our government and, and systems right again, um, both in, in, you know, in terms of who gets elected, and also in terms of what people buy and believe. Um, and so, you know, your article uh, yesterday on Common Dreams really jumped out for me among the many, 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 many articles unpacking um, what went on in Iowa earlier this week and, you know, over the last two days. Um, the title of your article is, Iowa Wasn't a Technology Failure, it was a failure of democratic values. Um, so, you know, that's going to be our, our theme today. And, um, you know, and, and I think that's a terrific place to begin because actually I have run across many people who are very right-brained and lacking in emotional intelligence and are just kind of just the facts, please. Uh, and, you know, I don't think the facts actually um, tell us they can tell us something, but really we're always interpreting the facts because we are cultural and social beings, um, and so we're always interpreting them and, it's, you know, assuming that there's just some stripped-down fact um, that doesn't have a human, <laughs> human intention involved with it in some way or another is, I think, extraordinarily naive. Um, you know, what, what is, you know... You know, how can we look beyond the tech, what happened with the technology to what was going on with the people that and the yeah. um, social order that engineered what we have seen this week? Yeah, I, I look, I used to work with tech, information technology in healthcare, working for the dark side. This was many years ago, and I even wrote chapters and textbooks on you know, the interaction between human behavior and technology as, as it involved healthcare. So maybe I brought that lens to it. It's not so much just looking at the facts, in, in my view, as it is looking at all the facts, uh, not just the technology, but human beings build the technology, right? So, uh, you know, it's a matter of putting the technology in context. I would... I would start by saying just to get, you know, what we can about Trump out of the way up front, I knew he was going to take advantage of this, as he's done, uh, you know, saying the Democrats can't get anything done, can't run anything, reminding people of the uh, Obamacare uh, rollout, uh, the disaster with that website and so on. He's going to, you know, it, it points to Democratic incompetence. Incompetence and my original first line to this piece, Allison, which I decided to take out. Originally, I was going to open it by saying, in other news, Democrats plan to run in November uh, on a theme of restoring competence to government. Um, <laughs> the, well, no, let me get to my point right away, which is this is uh -huh. this is not a failure of technology; it's a failure of values. What I'm democratic values. What I mean by that is uh, if you look at, uh, you know, and I, I run through it a little bit in the piece, if you look at this 
and, and I've seen this so many times in different contexts, but if you look at the sequence of events, uh, the level, uh, just from the strictly, you know, what you originally defined as factual point of view, the level of incompetence is mind-blowing. It's hard to wrap your head around how any group of people could be so incompetent. They, they took a, a procedure that had been, first of all, they spent three years uh, whipping up uh, ex excess fear and hysteria about hacking from Russians and others. Not to say yeah. that Russians have never done anything online, but they've made that a dominant theme and used that fear to enforce conformity in the party and everything else. So they've been harping away at this theme for years now. Uh, then they is that that everything online is you know is within the reach of Putin's you know tentacles. Then they take a process that was completely offline and manual. And yet, still was able to report the results, in, you know, by that evening, and uh, and therefore completely unhackable. And they put it online. They digitized it. And not only did they do that, they put it on the most hackable technology uh, imaginable, which is a cell phone. So they had everybody reported in on. There are other ways they could have done it. They chose this highly vulnerable platform. And then they waited until the very last minute to roll it out so that the people who were supposed to use it were unable to really familiarize themselves with it. And they didn't test it in the field. They didn't test it with some volume to see whether it could stand up to, you know, I mean, on and on and on. They didn't staff the phone lines adequately because they assumed the technology would do it. It's just, you know, it would be hard to find people off the street who could manage something so badly. So from that point of view, it's uh, it's an unimaginable cluster F. But if you step back and look at how it came to be and why it came to be, it all begins to make sense, which is that there is a small, relatively small group of, let's say, a few hundred Democratic Party centrist insiders who above all else, guarantee their own job security and that of their friends. There's, you know, I was thinking, trying to remember the phrase from high school Latin. Um, uh, it was something, monos, monum, lavat, one hand washes the other. And whatever happens, no matter how badly any member of the club screws something up, that'll be a gig for them from the other members of the club. Case in point, there was a long, long period on Monday evening where everybody thought that Robbie Mook, Hillary Clinton's 2016 campaign manager, had created this app. And, you know, some of us, even the most radical, like, you know, I always, you know, journalistically, I, I don't take something off the Internet. I wait. I try to dig up the facts and so on. Well, I and a couple others I was in touch with on Monday evening, like Max Blumenthal at the Green Zone, uh, and then I was following some others like Lee Fong at, at Intercept and so on. It soon became clear that this, while this was not Robbie Mook's creation, first of all, it was created by a company called Shadow that was uh, started up by veterans of the Hillary Clinton campaign, other veterans. Robbie Mook was, and his firm were brought in to do uh, training for Democrats and Republicans on, on avoiding cyber hacking. In other words, in this case, they created a vulnerability. And by the way, Robbie Mook was actively involved in drumming up the fear uh, of cyber hacking. Then they 
built the technology that created the vulnerability that they could then uh, make more money for their friends by consulting and training about. Uh, and then bad things happen. So if you think of it, and Robbie Mook was quoted as saying something like, we put them through the ringer on the worst case scenarios for cyber hacking, but they didn't consider the worst case scenarios for actually counting the, the, uh, the votes or the delegates. So because it wasn't important to them. That's the thing I, I wanted to emphasize here because I've been seeing it in the Democratic Party over and over again. It's not that they set out, I don't think, there's no evidence that they set out to deliberately fail, even though there's money, uh, you know, one of Pete Buttigieg's largest contributors is the primary funder of the company that did this work. And so, I, I, so there's no evidence that they sabotaged it, but there is evidence that, that they didn't care as much about the app as they did about the deal. I think I wrote something like the app was the byproduct of, or the waste product of, I don't remember my exact words, of the deal, which is what mattered, that they take care of themselves. That's why you see campaign managers for Democrats who lose big, over bigly, over and over again, yet still get another job. Because the main thing is they take care of each other, come what may. If that means getting the job, if the job gets done, okay, good. If the job doesn't get done, doesn't matter. They'll still take care of each other. And that is not Democratic. It's not big D democratic. It's not small D democratic. It is a party run by a tiny self-serving fiefdom. Uh, you know, they may be nice people, but they've. You know, what I meant by a failure of values was that they've. Uh, what's the word? They've internalized uh, a way of doing business that is profoundly undemocratic. Hurts the party. Hurts democrat democracy overall, and that needs to be called out and changed. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, you know, you're saying, actually, that this is uh, a product of the servant class, you know, the, the, the uh, managerial class, shall we say, of the Democratic Party. So you're, you're saying that um, the, the corruption here, and, and that somebody then, like Pete Buttigieg, takes advantage of the situation, or what about the fact that he actually paid money to the same firm for services. Does that become suspect in the situation? Well, of course it's suspect. I mean, you know, part of the problem is that, you know, let's go back a step. Uh, For the past three or four years, we have taken one of the smallest factors in this election's outcome, or by we, I don't mean we, you and me, I mean them. Mm -hmm. All right, have taken one of the smallest Issues in a democratic outcome, and uh, frankly, a factor that may not have affected the outcome at all, which is the Green Party voters, the people who voted for Jill Stein. There's no evidence that any of those people or any significant number of those people would have voted for Hillary if if Bernie had done something different. Bernie did 39 uh, whistle stops for Hillary to try to get her elected. Hillary did something like nine for Barack Obama after she lost to him. So, but uh, they demonized Bernie. They demonized the left. They blamed the left for what happened. And, um, and so, of course, the, you know, certain people have been, they deliberately antagonized the left over and over, uh, which by any common sense uh, reasoning would be a bad thing to do if you feel you're going to need every vote to win in 2020, right? But, they don't care. They did it. Uh, 
on one level, too, that was that's political malpractice. It's unforgivably irresponsible. They should be trying to rule everyone, uh, but they're not. Why would they not? They would not. They would antagonize the left because for some people, it's more important to preserve their own cushy position within the party hierarchy and the stream of gigs and money that that represents to them than it is to win elections. I'm not saying they'd rather lose elections, but, uh, you know, priorities being what they are there, you know, I feel they would rather lose certain elections than threaten their own position. So uh, in terms of Pete Buttigieg taking advantage of the chaos, no wonder people think that uh, that there may be something uh, nefarious going on. Uh, I'm saying there's no evidence that there is. Uh, who, you know, it's possible, but you don't even have to, uh, you know, wonder about what's in plain sight, which is, and think about it, uh, Shadow Incorporated, this this company, Democratic uh, run, Democratic insider company, Shadow Incorporated, which, by the way, could you think of a more sinister name? You know, I, I think I wrote in the really? piece that, uh, you know, that the other good evil names were taken, like Spectre and Hydra. But, but you know, it, you take these people, you know, they're not the... They're not like brilliant app designers, right? They didn't go to the premier technologists in the world. They gave the gig to their friends because that's what they do. They don't look for the best. They take care of each other. So that's what they did in designing the app. That's what they did in bringing Robbie Mook in as a consultant. Over and over, that's what they do because uh, winning isn't uh, everything. Winning is second or third place to, you know, we take care of our own. And that, you know, that's actually a new uh, new uh, stage in the evolution of what you might call legal political corruption. I mean, your boss Tweed and the other political machines of the past, yeah, you had to pay off your alder. I wrote, wrote this in the piece. Yeah, you had to give your all, local alderman a few bucks if you wanted the sewers fixed, but the sewers got fixed. Now people donate to the Democratic Party as an institution, uh, and the sewers may or may not get fixed. We don't know because they hire con- consultants, their friends who have never worked on a sewer in their lives, but they want to take care of each other. And if the sewers get fixed, fine. And if the sewers don't get fixed, fine, uh, as long as they, their friends are, you know, have a steady stream of gigs. That's the Democratic Party we know is broken. So we, you know, the conspiracies and stuff, yeah, certainly, um, I think this has very much played out to Buttigieg's advantage, and this guy, Klarman, who is a major funder to Shadow Incorporated, uh, is also a big Buttigieg donor. But, you know, any time you open the lid on these incestuous relationships, there's always something very unpretty there. So even based on what we know, it's a broken, undemocratic system, and uh, Democrats should be ashamed of it. You know, it's um, Robbie Mook, who you're mentioning. I mean, really, it was Clinton's uh, decision to follow his, uh, his analysis of the data, because he, ironically, is some kind of a data maven, given this strange turn of affairs with Iowa. But, you know, it was her decision to use that and to skip states that um, he considered to be less important. 
uh, you know, like Michigan and Wisconsin. Uh, she didn't visit them. They were hurting. Uh, these Rust Belt states were hurting from the trade deals, you know, which I was continuously reporting on uh, for that in the prior two years and everything, and people were kind of ignoring it. But it was that that created the swing from Obama to Trump. So really, he, this, you know, he, he's the guy, and all the finger-pointing um, goes to Sanders and his people who, as you point out, you know, you just pointed out, and I mentioned it in my Common Dreams article and the Blame Game, which is like, I think it's my most viral article up at 23,000 um, hits or whatever, or shares, you know, which really makes, uh, tracks the fact that actually Sanders voters helped um, Clinton win the popular vote, and she would have lost terribly without us. So the whole blame thing is actually screwed up there. Uh, it's inversed. It's used for political motives, where in fact, it's really this individual, the kind of person you're talking about, a sort of poster child for these insiders that these politicians rely on and allow to run amok because they, too, are not concerned about the real fallout on people. Um, or whether, you know, the nomination functions and maybe, you know, they're happy for a disruption if it, if it does not. Um, you know, if it interrupts Sanders, which we know there have been rumblings about, and, and instead it's like, you know, in the lap of somebody who has already proven incompetence and is then part, you know, of an expanded team that derails the opening primary uh, for the Democratic nomination after millions, if not trillions of dollars have been spent on this entire primary process. Um, and then, you know, it's kind of like they wanted to sort of tear it up and say we don't like the outcome, you know. So, like, we'll either treat it negligently, as you're describing, or, you know, perhaps deliberately disrupt it. Um, you know, and do do something else, we know not what. And so instead of being able to trust that the Democrats can deliver a democratic process, we have, you know, mounting evidence from 216 and going forward. Many people can track that back much further than 216, 20, you know, 30 years ago, that, you know, when we hear like a tyrant like Trump up there, um, you know, openly threatening democracy and clearly with a pre preference for some kind of a, you know, total, totalitarian government, uh, then we turn, swivel our heads and, you know, are, are supposed to look over to the Democrats to save us. And they somehow are too vested, um, too incompetent, um, you know, to, to really pull it off. But they are able, how, you know, however it occurred, to pull, put off, pull off a major disruption. Um, you know, where are we in terms of democratic values if the so-called opposition is actually functioning in tandem and is so compromised? Well, I mean, obviously there are a lot of dimensions to that question, but uh, consider, uh, you know, I mean, I think, first of all, just to go back to uh, 2016, I don't, you know, I certainly don't, I don't think they're saying I don't think they uh, were no, knew they were following uh, substandard advice when Robbie Mook and others reportedly said that Hillary didn't need to go to Wisconsin. It was in the bag. I think that was, you know, a screw up. But normally someone who makes a bad call of that magnitude is not somebody you keep 
looking to for advice on how to win, right? But snatching <laughs> defeat from the jaws of victory, you know, is not a great credential. Uh, you know, I uh, uh, that's number one. Number two is, as I pointed out, you know, I mean, uh, you know, so Robbie Mook is now a cybersecurity expert, but in a piece I wrote in 2017 when he was drumming up uh, a panic about Russia as one of, to prove one of his examples, in an article he wrote, he hyperlinked to something and said, Russian activity like this meant to subvert democracy. And um, he actually hyperlinked to an article about Macedonian teenagers who were making money creating fake news websites. Uh, it wasn't about Russia at all. So, I mean, a guy who either linked to the wrong article or misrepresented what it was saying, uh, that's your cybersecurity guy when he, you know, he can't even hyperlink accurately. You know, I mean, it, it, it's all, and I don't mean, you know, look, he, everybody, <laughs> several people have told me, hey, Robbie's a nice guy. Well, he may be a nice guy, but he and all these other people, I'm a Republican right winger operatives and senators and they're nice guys it's not about who's nice on a personal level but when you're part of a culture in this case a democratic party insider culture that has lost its values or has whose values are wrong uh hey let's take care right robbie's a nice guy let's give it to him if you're part of a culture that has you know effed up values and you internalize those values, as I wrote in the piece, then you either forget about the values you used to have yourself, or even worse, you delude yourself into thinking you're still acting according to those values, when what you're really doing is taking the hopes, aspirations, and urgent needs of a country where you're supposed to represent the alternative to this proto-fascist movement, and you're you 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 are selling them off to take care of your friends, and yeah, if we stop the guy, we do. If we don't, we don't. And uh, that that's shameful. You know that's shameful. But I know how you get uh, seduced into it. But we got to call it out. And there are practical things we do. Uh, you know, including you know, I mentioned Nomaki Konst in this piece, who he has worked in the DNC, who who says you know transparency. I'm on bidding and procurement for the Democratic Party. Yes, great idea. Uh, there are, so there are procedural things we can do to democratize this process, but it's also a matter of just saying, you know, it can't go on this way. You can't take care of your losing pals. Uh, you know, you can't, you know, I saw James Carville on MSNBC last night trashing the left, trashing Bernie. Uh, who did he support? You know, Bennett, you know, who's, you know, nobody liked. Uh, uh, you can't go back to the Obama way of doing things, which cost 1,200 seats at the state level as and control. We lost, uh, we meaning Democrats in this case, lost the House, lost the Senate. Uh, you know, you can't go back to that, but they would if they could, because uh, that guarantees their gigs. And one last thing, which is, you know, everybody's talking about the differences between Bernie and Elizabeth Warren without going into the question. There are, in my view, uh, I guess I started saying in my view when I worked for Bernie, but there are, in my view, uh, you have differences between them, okay? But Warren is obviously much more left populist than any of the others once beyond Bernie. Uh, but one big difference, 
And one reason why the establishment is kind of cozying up to Elizabeth Warren, Obama is, has made calls, according to some reports, saying you should take to Wall Street funders, saying you shouldn't be so scared of her, et cetera, et cetera. I think, I believe that's because, not because of the most nefarious interpretation, but the most obvious one, which is Elizabeth Warren comes out of the same network of academia, think tanks, uh, you know, and other institutions. If you're a Democratic operative, uh, advised, had, you know, mid-level jobs in two Democratic administrations, and you now work at the Center for American Progress, if Elizabeth Warren becomes president, you'll probably get your third administration gig. If Bernie Sanders becomes president, you probably won't. You might. Actually, I, knowing Bernie as I do, I think some of you would, but I think the fear of institutional importance and then future gigs also extends to policy advisors, economists, uh, you know, all the people who work at these various think tanks who say, you know, if this guy gets Bernie gets in, uh, I'm nobody. Uh, you know, I'm not going to be invited to a White House colloquia on, you know, whatever. Uh, but if Warren gets in, you know, even if she does a lot of the, some of the things Bernie would do, maybe a lot of the things Bernie would do, my gig will go okay. I do believe that's one of the big reasons why uh, Warren gets in those supportive calls on her behalf from Bernie, uh, I'm sorry, from Obama, and why you see people saying, well, we can live with the Warren, but not Sanders. Again, it's this insider culture taking care of itself. Wow, that's so interesting. <clears throat> you know, um, I just, uh, one of the things that um, came up when I um, posted your article on my Facebook page uh, was somebody commented, well, these people aren't nice. And it sort of threw me back to uh, the conversations about, uh, you know, which Ellen DeGeneres was kind of saying, well, you know, uh, Former President Bush is is my friend. He's a nice guy. Uh, politics don't come into it, and there's a kind of uh, dissociation, um, which many people do because it's quite uncomfortable. In fact, um, you know, you have to sort of put your uh, political views in the closet when you know, perhaps, in talking or you know, mention them very gingerly and rarely in talking with uh, people one might have known and liked over many years who are winding up in a completely different place in terms of their uh, political understanding of what's going on in our country right now. So, you know, there is this thing of what do we do about that in a nation so divided, uh, and it's part of the whole conversation of campaigning as well, you know, informing, persuading, and leading people um, to understand more so that they can not buy in um, to media uh, labeling and messaging that is erroneous and just trusted as if it's, you know, the, the, the eternal truth or something. Um, and so, you know, given that as a landscape, <clears throat> how do we even define who's nice? Is somebody who's nice uh, a guy who has, you know, ma you know, nice manners, gives you a stick of chewing gum, makes a little joke? Uh, is, is that nice? Or, you know, but meanwhile, if we're speaking of Bush, for example, he's a war criminal. Um, you know, we see uh, Michelle Obama, who's so highly revered, you know, as a uh, 
uh, warm-hearted wife and mother, uh, you know, a, a role model for women, uh, you know, uh, and yet, you know, there she is cozying up to George Bush. He's such a charming and adorable guy, you know. Um, so, you know, do we, when you talk about values and then, you know, as you do, I mean, this is the, the, the you know, the, the premise of your entire article, you know, do we need to, I mean, can you be a nice person and have values that result in harm and destruction to other people you know, on the it, planet it, as a whole? I mean, what does it mean to actually be nice? Well, you know, it, it, it's, you know, I put the nice section of this in deliberately. I mean, with thought, uh, and, but it's such a complex and deep subject. That's one of the reasons why I, I put it in, because, mm-hmm. you know, uh, my... My pieces, like all our pieces, sometimes get read by, you know, people who could have an impact on all of this. And I wanted to deliberately point out that just because you like somebody doesn't mean they're not doing something that is morally wrong and even potentially evil. Uh, You know, I mean, I remember once I was doing Radio Row uh, in New Hampshire in 2016, mm-hmm. and one of the, you know, the various uh, uh, surrogates for the different candidates were coming around, and all I knew was surrogate for Marco Rubio. Okay, this guy sits down. I couldn't hear over the background noise who it was, so I said to this guy, hey, what's your name? He said, Jim Rish. Well, it, I didn't put two and two together. It was Senator James Rish from, I forget why, yeah, one of the smaller states. And uh, I went, so, Jim, what do you do for a living? Which, for the same with Senator, is like the worst protocol <laughs> violation imaginable. And he was incredibly nice and gracious. And he laughed. He said, I'm a United States Senator. And I went, oh, God, sorry, man. You know, what about And he couldn't have been nicer. He couldn't have been. And yet, Jim Rish will vote over and over again for policies that are not only bad, they, they kill people. Uh, war policies that kill people, healthcare policies that kill people, you know, cuts in social services that kill people. Mm-hmm. By a moral standard, uh, Jim Rish, my, my nice guy, you know, friend, uh, mm-hmm. is a killer. So the, one of the moral challenges of our time, especially if you live in Washington, D.C., as I know, as I do, one of the moral challenges is, you know, uh, kill uh, people who are supporting evil and deadly policies can be nice individuals because they've built themselves or, in, or, or inserted themselves into a, a, a cocoon of delusion where what they're doing is okay. They, you know, so... You know, I wanted to just kind of, from the Democratic side, poke at that a little bit, because I never want to lose an understanding that what they've done, what these people do is profoundly evil. One of my longstanding rants, I don't know if I've read about it, but I've certainly talked about it a lot on my show and other shows, is, frankly, the herd-like mentality of Democratic voters who, uh, you know, Years ago, um, uh, I think uh, George Bush's uh, approval rating among all Americans was about 22%, because we all knew he had lied his way into a war that killed hundreds, hundreds of thousands, possibly a million or more 
people in Iraq, including thousands of young Americans, maimed and disabled, millions and thousands more, uh, which was an act of profound evil. And so, rightly, most Americans loathed him, and yet all he had to do was give a piece of candy to Michelle Obama uh, on camera, and now a majority of Democrats approve have a favorable opinion of, of George W. Bush. So, you know, okay. he may or may not he may or may not be a nice guy personally. I think you know, I was at one smallish event with him when he was first uh, president, and you know, he seemed to have a kind of uh, affable, you know thing about him, but uh, he also seemed like there was something wrong with him, but um, well, whatever. Uh, you know, the point is, if we, you know, if Democrats can't get past the idea that niceness on a personal level exonerates you, we're in big trouble. Now, maybe I didn't convey that accurately in the piece, so I know one of the commenters com- compared it to Mark Antony's speech you know, about uh, the assassination of Caesar. Shakespeare, you know, like, uh, that wasn't what I was going for here necessarily, but, yeah, maybe. Uh, But uh, whatever we think of these people as individuals, for example, you know, I mean, I think Chris Matthews is very likable, which is not a popular view in in my political spectrum, but yeah, he seems like a very nice guy. You know, my son used to work at a video store where he'd come in and said he was really friendly and nice. But it doesn't matter. You know, I mean, if they're wrong, they're wrong, and you got to call them out. But in that, with that mention, now, I, I don't want to. No, I, I just want to interject. I Trump think that you raise just, a very yeah. important point in bringing this up because, you know, this is a huge. Uh, disconnect for Americans. A, uh, we get seduced and, you know, fall in love with and place all our hopes and trust in candidates uh, because we, we like them, you know. Um, and then if somebody has a gruff voice and shouts a little, it's like, you know, oh, I'm too fragile, I can't handle that. Um, <laughs> you know, and then, like, that's not the way I would want a friend to speak, you know. Well, you know, this is somebody at a, at a podium before, you know, thousands and thousands of people. Uh, breaking through a lot of denial in our system. But, you know, people can't handle it because they're used to being cosseted uh, by these, you know, mellifluous personalities, and then they come to love and trust them, and then they basically go to sleep, and uh, they don't look at what they're actually doing that would revise one's uh, view of them as nice. So we totally, I mean, nice being... I'm sure there are other cultures probably in Europe where nice is not, you know... uh, considered a national virtue in the same way as it is here. So, I, you know, I just want to say that, like, I think you're unpacking and poking at something very important because also it's not just how we perceive people. It's about how the people who are doing the wrong perceive themselves. And, you know, one of the things that people, for example, in the environmental movement will often ask is, you know, how don't they think of their grandchildren, you know, um, and the answer is they're probably, you know, they probably falsely believe that, you know, their wealth will protect many generations of their family from the effects that other people will have to go through. And, of course, even if that were true, which it isn't, um, it wouldn't be very nice <laughs> to be thinking that way. You know, so I, I think that everybody, you know, can probably 
do some more looking in the mirror and closer scrutinizing of public figures and backstage figures so that we're not um, kidding ourselves in a time of such high peril, um, you know, with key decisions uh, that need to be made, like the present. So I thank you for bringing that up, you know. Well, yeah, and two thoughts about it. One, in terms of the grandchildren, uh, I think people also, as part of the bubble of mutual niceness, uh, engage in a kind of cognitive dissonance where they're able to just tune out the actual consequences of their actions. And they, it becomes, what comes to mind for me is I was part of a small group of writers invited to meet with Tim Geithner, uh, in 2010, mm-hmm. and uh, I mean, there were multiple examples of that in this meeting. But the one I remember the best is when, uh, when I looked Geithner in the eye and said, "You know, what you're doing to homeowners is creating a lot of human misery." And I just wonder why there isn't more of a sense of urgency about reducing them. Is there, I'm paraphrasing now. I wrote it up so the words are out there somewhere. And his eyes literally, it was fascinating to me. There was a, they almost glazed over or there was a film over them for a moment as if he had just heard something that he couldn't process, that he never right. heard, you know. And then he said, well, even your hero, Paul Krugman, says that spending on this is government spending, it leads to blah, blah, blah. And, like, well, and then he turned to some, somebody else, or he made a, and then he gave, made a wise-ass comment, uh, even more wise-ass comment, and moved on. But, I mean, it was an interesting example to me, of, and before we went in, the under, before he came in, Undersecretary of Treasury was complaining that the New York Times had given a Geithner op-ed an inflammatory headline, which was, Welcome to Your Recovery, while things were still terrible. So they were all complaining, Welcome to Your... How could they do that to us? That's not what the Secretary was saying. And I said, Well, have you stopped, ever stopped to wonder why the New York Times decided to do that? What you might be doing that ha- might have encouraged the New York Times to represent your position as overly rosy. It was like, again, cognitive dissonance. Never thought about it. So that, I think, is a big part of it. As for the rest of it, I can't help but bring this up in a very funny interview in 1968 when the movie The Producers by Mel Brooks was coming out. Mm-hmm. Mel Brooks was at, asked what you know, why he would make a movie about Adolf Hitler, and of course being flippant, he answered, well, everybody knows the bad side of Hitler, the dictatorship and all that bad stuff, but how many people know the human side of Hitler that, you know, he could, he was, uh, he could sing better than Churchill, I think he said he could dance better than Churchill, he could paint a whole apartment in an hour, two coats, and uh, he had a pecuniary named Bob. So, you know, I mean, I think it's like, Part of it is, you know, everybody's got their own version of a pet canary named Bob, but if they're doing wrong, <laughs> you have to call them out on it. And if you don't get as much party invitations, you know, okay, I guess you don't get as many party invitations, but that's, uh, that's the way it goes, you know, because you have to do it. And people sometimes think you're not nice, right? They think people like us are not nice because, you know, we point out this stuff. Um, no. but and it takes courage to do it. 
when you're in a culture of niceness where, you know, the whole thing that we've all tacitly agreed to, which makes us superficially safe to one another, is that we don't do stuff like that. I mean, I'm somebody, you know, my famous courageous gotcha question, or one of them, was that um, I saw former New York State Attorney General Eric Schneiderman at a social event um, with a, a, you know, a certain type of, of, of woman, yeah, girl, um, that, that, you know, helped me to perceive that he had issues of a certain kind with women that have since come under, you know, the whole Me Too rubric, and ultimately he had to resign uh, because of <clears throat> accusations concerning, you know, some of these behaviors. And I talked to him on, at a first meeting and told him that he had a problem with women and that he should clean up his act so that he wouldn't be booted from office. Um, and uh, so if you want to talk about an eye glaze, you know, from a complete stranger, but of course, you know, with the kinds of backgrounds in perception, psychology, human behavior, wanting to know what ticks, which are kind of common um, to both journalists and as well to, you know, people who are psychologically savvy or oriented, um, this was kind of a no-brainer, but it was definitely... You know, I'm sure he did not consider it a nice thing for me to say. Um, but it would have actually it was nice because it would have spared him and the state of New York from having, you know, uh, a pro-environmental, uh, you know, leader, you know, kind of yanked from office at an inopportune time. Well, you know, there's a story. I, I, there's a story from the Islamic tradition that says that Muhammad was telling people you have to be kind to everyone. And someone said, what about an oppressor? And he said, you have to do kindness to an oppressor, too. And they said, how can we be kind to an oppressor? And he said, stop them from oppressing. You know, <laughs> so you're right. In in terms of your encounter, you know, the ultimate act of kindness is to prevent people from doing wrong. Now, they may not see you as nice, and they may not see you as kind, but, you know, the bearing witness is, a tradition is a is a honored role in every cultural and spiritual tradition, you know. And it's a, you know you don't always have a lot of friends when you do that. I actually you know, I, I ran into James Carville on a train and introduced myself, and uh, I told him, "Hey, so what do you do?" And I said, "I work for Bernie." And he got cold. He said, "Well, I guess everybody's got to work for somebody." And I said, yeah, ain't that the truth? <laughs> Look at you. <laughs> and, uh, but, you know, I mean, this is, but he was nice, right? He was polite. He was courteous. Uh, I was courteous. You know, I, I think he can still be courteous on a personal level if it comes to that. Uh, I have met, oh, oh, boy, I have met people I've really mocked, and that was awkward. At the same New Hampshire event, I was on the Young Turks, I used, uh, and I actually mimicked uh, Dave Pryor, I forget which Pryor, Dave Pryor, then senator from Arkansas, uh, for a, a video he had made, uh, which I thought would cost him the election. His, he, he would lose that election, and he did, but I kind of you know, mimicked what he said and made fun of it, and then found out it, that the Young Turks told me it got 100,000 views in Arkansas alone. So oh it had some sort of... It had some sort of effect, and then in this sort of roundabout thing in uh, the surrogate, uh, you know, speed dating thing, 
he sits down across from me and somebody says, you know, RJ Escal, meet Dave Pryor, Dave Pryor, meet RJ Escal. Wow, was that an awkward moment. It was, I felt bad that I had been immediately after this video that I had lost it and been, you know, that little, that little really nasty and really snarky. But uh, his video had ticked me off, had triggered me. And there he was, and there I was, and it was not the best interview ever. Um, but that's the other thing is that sometimes I get really vehement, and then I feel kind of bad, you know. And I, yet after all these years, you know, 15 years of doing this, I still haven't, you know, I still sometimes think, oh, should I have said that? Was that too harsh? Am I, you know, so it's, it's, it's a balancing act, I guess. Yeah. I mean, even in writing and in journalism, you know, do you say this or avoid that? Do you say it indirectly? Do you go for the kill? I mean, do you, you know, like, uh, there are always all those choices. Um, and, you know, and then there's the, the old, what can people hear? You know, the idea that um, if people can't hear it, um, you know, you have to speak to them, uh, you know, at a, and here I'm about to use a pejorative, at a pablum level, um, <laughs> you know, uh, because that's what they can hear. And yet that is the reality that um, people, and, and I, I don't think it's, you know, there, people are, you know, everybody is a citizen, everybody has a vote, um, but people are at very different levels in terms of both their political information base as well as their encounters with, uh, a, you know, a wider variety of people who um, may be uh, more adversely uh, affected by these systemic structures, you know, than they themselves are. Um, you know, so people, you know, are operating in these different silos <clears throat> where they're really um, out of touch. And, and those are two different factors, you know, in um, <clears throat> what's going on uh, with with the population, and yet the presumption of democracy is, of course, that, you know, everyone is entitled to their view, uh, they have to be spoken to at the level, and, and the problem is that the media has indoctrinated people <clears throat> to being, uh, to basically taking media figures as authorities and just believing in them, you know, uh, which I think is, you know, highly, highly, highly problematic. Um, and, and also, you know, what I'm really appreciative of in this program is that we're sort of peeling back the curtain. Uh, you know, if you, if you say something negative about the Democratic Party, people have been inculcated to believe that, therefore, we've given the win to Trump. It never occurs to people that the failures and the um, uh, insularity and the vestedness of the Democratic Party could themselves be through undermining democracy as we have just seen in Iowa <clears throat> could could actually be contributing to a win for Trump and uh, well, you know exactly. and, and maybe they you know these people who are in this cushy position have less of a problem with that you know than than all the rest of us do well, yeah, and, and then you get to, uh, and you're touching on you know, not just these operatives, but the people who want to say, you know, vote blue, hashtag vote blue no matter who, which is an automatic response to any criticism of the Democratic Party, or even the piece I wrote, don't look, look forward, don't look back. Like, uh, no, 
No. When the Exxon Valdez sank and, and caused all that environmental damage and, and got destroyed, the ship got destroyed, nobody said, well, we'll look forward. You know, let's not figure out why it happened. No, no. And if you really want to beat Trump, then now is the time to talk about what people are doing wrong that will make you less likely to beat Trump. Like, for example, giving important jobs to your friends, even though there's a chance they might screw them up, that that's an opportunity for Trump that he's already taken rhetorically. And also, if you do a bad job, as you did for ma- as you've done for many years, uh, Trump's only in because of your mistakes, although you don't want to admit it. So this whole notion, uh, you know, that you're not allowed, it's really very uh, authoritarian and it's very uh, closed-minded. So is the notion that, oh, we don't want to communicate with Trump voters. They're racist. Uh, those voters that voted for Obama, but wouldn't vote for Hillary, those white voters, uh, are racist. Well, they voted for a black person, you know. So clearly, they're reachable. So why aren't you expending your energy figuring out how to reach them? I've had this argument with Democratic, you know, like Marcos at Daily Coast writing that coal miners who voted for Trump deserve to have their black lung benefits taken away. A monstrous thing, to, literally monstrous thing to say that he later took back. But one of the things I admired most about Bernie going around with him is he talked to anybody, including Trump voters. You know, for, yeah, he's rude to everybody, but he's also, res- I mean, if you take it that way, but he's respectful to everybody, and he talks to those voters. So my answer to the Daily Coast people and the people, the deplorables, they're all deplorables crowd is, sure, there's, you know, hardcore of racists out there that aren't worth your time, but for a lot, most, a lot of those people, number one, if you don't like talking to people who disagree with you and trying to make them agree with you, then politics is a bad career choice for you, because that is politics. That's what you do if you're Activism is a bad choice for you because that is activism. So if you just want to dismiss people who don't already share your opinions as unforgivably bad, you're in the wrong line of work to even comment about politics and activism because that's the job. So that's and number two. I come from, you know, uh, a long tradition of every, you know, redemption. The possibility of redemption that people made bad, I made bad choices in the past. I tried to, I corrected myself and to the extent that I did harm or may have contributed to harm. I've tried to undo it, right? So, but what, I'm going to turn around and say somebody who voted for Trump because they're pissed off about the way the world runs, somebody like in my hometown or wherever voted for Trump because I, you know, whatever, you know, these they're all crooked, at least Trump, you know, is a part of that system. I'm just going to condemn them forever. That's what Trump wants. They, he, that's what he wants you to do if you're progressive. So, that, you know, I, I just don't get it. I mean, I do respect people. I've had this argument with people in my own family. Yeah, there are people who voted for Trump uh, and didn't care about the, you know, the, the, his, his horrible things about women. I don't condone it, but I, I get it that, you know, they may be people worth talking to, people who might come around. So why not give it a shot? Yeah. I mean, I spent 216 pushing Clinton on the TPP, predicting that she would lose because of her weak 
uh, and contrived opposition to it and that she would allow Trump to own that issue. And people were like, oh, well, don't, no, we can't criticize her because then he'll win and this and that. It's like, how do we adjust the society and the message and the strategy to where it's effective um, if we can't uh, say anything? We can't criticize, we can't offer a different viewpoint. I mean, fundamentally, we're on the brink of totalitarianism, and then we're espousing authoritarian values as we try to correct that. Does that make sense? <laughs> I mean, I, I don't you know, think I'm so. Actually working on a big, I'm actually working on a big piece about that. So, um, yeah, I, I totally agree. And um, I don't know uh, where it's all going, but, you know, we'll see. I think if Bernie gets the nomination they'll subtly try to undermine him. I hope, I hope I'm wrong. Uh, and uh, I don't know who else is likely to get it at this point. I thought it was Biden, but he did not do well. So that's going to affect funding and coverage, press coverage. So I don't know what's, you know, but uh, Democrats should be a lot more worried than they seem to be. Yeah, well, I mean, I think they're maybe waiting for um, you know, their own authoritarian top-down person in Bloomberg, you know, to come landing, you know, from oh, the high. Oh, I think they are. And I'm, yeah. Yeah, I think they are. And, uh, mm-hmm. uh, you know, yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Which, of course, is, you know, in his prime run on time. But in any case, we're coming to the end of our show. It's been uh, wonderful talking with you today, Richard. We're speaking with... Richard Esco, the co-host of the Zero Hour, uh, wonderful podcast. Please do check that out. Um, if you want to read his current article on Common Dreams, uh, you know, it's up there. Uh, and, uh, you know, it's really great reading to get his complete thought because we've ranged, we've, we've kind of covered it, but we've also ranged uh, a bit far afield uh, in, <laughs> in today's show, which I think is great. Uh, and I love hearing, uh, you know, all of the experiences that inform your view, Richard. Um, Thank you so much for being with us on Connect the Dots today. It's just been, you know, so much fun. Uh, in, you know, looking at something that is painful and difficult, but we'll get through it. So, Well, thank you. Uh, I enjoyed it very much. And thank you, listeners, for being with us for this edition of Connect the Dots. We'll be back next Wednesday at 10 a.m. Eastern Time on the Progressive uh, Radio Network. Uh, thank you for being with us. Um, I'm Allison Rose-Levy, and, uh, you know, I usually do this kind of farewell salutation. So, you know, I'll just make it simple this week. Onward to New Hampshire.